everyone. Thanks for joining us for First College Ministries College Worship Gathering. We hope that what you hear will encourage you and challenge you to be more like Jesus in your everyday lives. If you're a college student in the Tuscaloosa area, please join us Tuesday nights at 8 p.m. for college worship. You can learn more about First College Ministry at firstcollegeministry.org. Well, good evening, y'all. Uh, welcome to College Worship. Uh, I hope that everyone's had a pretty good first couple of days to the week. I know this weekend was rough for quite a few of us, but hopefully uh, it's been a couple of days. Wounds have kind of settled. Um, my name is Jason, and I'm one of the fellows here at FCM, which means I get the pleasure of walking with you guys through the book of James tonight. Uh, if you were here last week, you got to hear Kate introduce us to this book. James is a very rich book. It's written specifically to believers. So it's written to people who already have a relationship with Christ. And the book is largely designed to give these believers practical advice about how their identity as Christians translates into their actions, what it looks like practically to walk with Christ. So last week, Kate walked us through the example of suffering and how James instructs us to engage with suffering, considering it joy and striving to see how God uses our hardships to shape us. Tonight, we're going to be looking at another practical topic, and it's one that I think serves as a crucial foundation for what we're going to be talking about throughout the rest of James. What we're specifically talking about is how Christians should approach God's word, how we should listen to God's teaching and allow this teaching to shape us in the way we live. And so to examine this, we're going to be in the end of James chapter 1, in the beginning of James chapter 2, if you want to go ahead and flip there. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, the words are going to be on the screen for the most part, but I want to emphasize something tonight that we tend to say a lot here. Uh, if you don't have a physical copy of God's Word, please come talk to me. Talk to RJ, Kate, Allison, Nathan, anyone of, on our leadership team, or really just anyone in this church in general. We would love to give you a Bible. As we're going to talk about tonight, hearing God's voice in our life is such a fundamental aspect of what it means to truly live out our faith. And one of the clearest ways we see that, if not the very clearest, is in the Word of God, the written Word of God, the Bible. And so we would love to give you one for free so that you can actually do what James is talking about in this passage. So with that being said, uh, if you guys are in James chapter 1, verse 19, we're going to be reading through to James chapter 2, verse 13. So if you guys would read along with me. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. 
My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Would you pray with me? Lord God, thank you for your word that you give us in the book of James. Thank you for just the fact that we get to read your written word, Lord. The fact that we have such ease of access to what you have for us. God, I ask right now that you would reveal to us those things that need to be put aside in our mind in order to prepare our hearts to hear your word and cause us to do away with those things. Just to set those things to the side and to intentionally seek you out, Lord, and to approach you in an, in an attitude of humility so that we would then be shaped by your word and have that translate into action, Lord. Lord, thank you for your gospel. Thank you for the fact that we don't have to earn our way closer and closer to you, but we are liberated to pursue you passionately because of what you did for us on the cross. As you would be present in this time and that your spirit would just Come into our hearts, Lord, and show us what you would have us do in the world today. Uh, inspire us, Lord, and let us just seek you earnestly in this time and to rest in your presence as we hear your word. I ask that you would uh, speak through me, Lord. Uh, let me get out of the way and help these words not to be mine, but to be yours. Uh, I ask all these things in your name, Lord. Amen. So we've got a fairly large passage to go over tonight, but I think we need to spend a lot of time right at the beginning of this passage because I think it's, it's deceptively small, but it sets the tone for the rest of what we're going to talk about tonight and really and truly the rest of James as a whole. Uh, what we're talking about is our posture towards the Word, uh, the way in which we engage God's instruction in our lives. And I think we can't expect ourselves to live in a manner that exemplifies Christ if we don't allow God to speak into our lives and to show us who he is. If you'll take a look with me again in James chapter 1, verses 19 through 21, I'm going to read from that real quick. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your, save your souls. So I think we can see in this verse that we need to have a posture towards God's word of attentive listening and also a willingness to follow through on what God shows us to do. And just a funny note on verse 19, in preparing this lesson, I realized that I'd always heard that verse brought up kind of out of context. Uh, it might be like a Sunday school teacher trying to get me to listen to what they're saying or my parents or whatever else. But, you know, this phrase, let every person be quick to hear, begs the question, quick to hear what, you know? And I think we need to 
get this down before we move on. I know it's just one verse, but James is specifically telling these believers to approach the implanted word of God with an attitude of teachability. He's not just talking about them trying to get them to pay attention in class or listen to their parents. That, those are good things, right? And they might actually be expressions of God's word. But he's specifically talking more fundamentally about listening to biblical teaching, to what God has to say to us. And this plays into a key aspect of James that we're going to see throughout the book. Words have power. In chapter 3, he spends a lot of time talking about the power of the tongue and how that can just wreak havoc in the world around us, the words we say. But even here, he's emphasizing proper communication with God as a central aspect of what it means to be a Christian. We need to be willing to genuinely listen to God's teaching if we want to experience the kind of life that he has for us. And this plays into how we interact with others as well. If we can't approach God with an attitude of humility and willingness to listen to what he has to say to us, then we can't really expect ourselves to listen to others, to approach them with humility. But what does receiving the word look like practically? Well, James is nothing if not practical. He lays out exactly what we need to do when he tells us to put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness. And I think what he's talking about here are those sins that exist within our minds at our very core, right? And get in the way of us listening to what God has to say. And this looks differently for different people. Um, but James chooses to emphasize the need to put away anger in verse 21. And I really do think this has implications for the way that we discuss God's word today. Passionate discussions and debates about biblical theology and teaching have been one of the most impactful things that I've engaged in while here at FCM. I have been shaped by challenges from my brothers in Christ to grow stronger in my faith because of passionate, heated discussions about this thing. But these have always been approached from an attitude of humility, of iron sharpening iron, right? We're trying to hone each other more and more into the image of Christ. When this passion doesn't come from God, like it does in that situation, but it comes from the anger of man, like James says, then we can't really expect our discussions to produce the righteousness of God. And if we're not pursuing the Lord and discussing his teaching, then what exactly are we doing other than misusing his word? I think it's an important thing to consider whenever we're going into a discussion of God's word. How are we using it? What, what purpose is this serving? But anger isn't the only thing that can get in the way of God speaking to us. Uh, for me, it looks more like laziness. I'll approach God's word in the morning. I'll go through my quiet time. But I don't really allow God to speak into my life and convict me about the ways in which I need to change my actions. And that's a problem because we know that whenever we look into God's word, it needs to be convicting us. If we haven't been challenged in who we are because of God's word, then maybe we haven't looked long enough or allowed it to peer deep enough into our souls. Now, I want to say this. This isn't something that we do naturally. It's something that is, has to be sought after actively, right? We're being told to strive to cast out everything that might distract us from God's teaching. And we're also told to receive with meekness the implanted word, so to throw off everything that would distract us and to take up this attitude of humility, meekness towards the implanted word. And I think I want to clear something up here before we move forward. That phrase, the implanted word, I think we need to figure out what that's talking about. It's not just talking about the scriptures, your physical Bible, though it is. Uh, Kate noted last week that this book is written by James, the brother of Jesus, in the first century AD. Um, and I want to provide some historical context to this before we move forward. First century believers didn't have these physical copies of God's Word. 
you know, this, it would have been read to them. These Old Testament scriptures and the writings of New Testament church leaders would have been read to them aloud by church leaders at the time. And you got to remember, most of these guys probably couldn't even read, right? So this implanted word in their context is referring to knowledge of God's teachings as guided by the Holy Spirit. And we actually see a really beautiful image of this uh, in this reality for God's people in the writings of the Old Testament prophets, looking forward to how God was going to do this and giving us his Holy Spirit. Uh, Jeremiah 31, verse 31 through 33 uh, says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. So we see in this, this image of the word of God, God's instruction, being put within our hearts. It's the Holy Spirit working through teaching to write his law on our hearts to guide our actions. And again, we see an image of this in Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 24 through 27. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So in these promises of a new covenant with his people, God's talking about putting his spirit within us and giving us new life, causing us to flourish, right? This implanted word causes us to be cleansed from the ways in which we used to live. This implanted word of God in our lives is talking about his written word, biblical counsel, and the Holy Spirit operating in and independent of all of these. And this word gives us life. I love the image that Ezekiel uses of a heart of flesh rather than stone, something living, beating, alive. When James says the implanted word is able to save your souls in verse 21, he's talking about this rejuvenation that comes from having the word spoken into your life. When we get rid of all the distractions that would get in the way of us approaching the word and come to him in an attitude of humility and meekness and a willingness to listen. Though we've already been saved, we get to continually experience salvation through the Holy Spirit as well as he continues to refine us and cause us to flourish like we see in this passage. And this posture of properly listening to and being impacted by God's teaching then translates into action. We can see this back in our main passage in James chapter 1, verse 22 through 25. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. So when I hear this example that James uses about the mirror, I think about the way that a mirror has worked in my own life. A lot of times when I look into the mirror, I'm shown those parts of my face that maybe need to be addressed. And that's a good thing. Uh, when the mirror says shave, you should probably shave. There was a period of my life around the time of the spring of 2020 where I just didn't handle that problem at all. And it got out of control. I would look at my face in the mirror, I would wash my face, and I would, I would know I need to shave. This is getting out of control. But I would walk away. <laughs> and I wouldn't do what was, that, what was clearly needing to be done. 
I know this is funny, but like how often do we approach God's teaching in our lives in this way? How often do we peer into the word and it shows us what we have to address? And we just choose to not address that. Or it may not even be an active choice, but we have this posture of apathy towards God's word. We think, oh, we'll handle that later. Or it's just, it's not that big of a deal to handle. I don't actually need to listen to what the word of God is challenging me in my life. I think about this uh, problem with my quiet time, right? I sit there and I, you know, experience God's word, but I kind of just check it off the list rather than allowing God's word to convict me, to speak into my heart, to show me those areas that need to be addressed. And I want to make it clear here, this isn't an easy thing to do, right? This isn't something we naturally want to do. No one wants to be challenged as much as we like to tell ourselves we do. Uh, Biblical scholar Matthew Henry, in his commentary on James, puts it this way. That which is truly the word of God is no flattering glass. Let the word of truth be carefully attended to, and it will set before you the corruption of your nature, the disorders of your hearts and lives. It will tell you plainly what you are. And I love that because it operates like a mirror. It shows us ourselves, the parts of ourselves we don't want to see. Um, But really and truly, this should draw us nearer and nearer to God because of, of the way it renews us and transforms us by his power closer and closer into his image. Paul has a really cool discussion of this in Romans chapter 7 where he looks into the Old Testament law and realizes he's not able to do any of this. And he's tried his whole life to follow the rules of the Old Testament. And I'll read that right now. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Wretched man that I am. I love that phrase because Paul's realizing just how broken he is as he peers into the word. And this is hard, right? Truly allowing God's word to tear into our souls is never easy and it shouldn't be. Hebrews chapter 4 describes the word of God as sharper than any two-edged sword for a reason. It cuts to the core of who you are. It shows you your own motivations and desires, which may be totally different than what you've told yourself they are. It functions as a mirror, disclosing to you the very aspects of your souls, even those that you would not want to see. Divinely inspired teaching reveals to us the areas where we need to act, but this isn't a reason to shy away from this. It's a reason to draw nearer and nearer to God's word. James describes God's word as the law of liberty in verse 25. And I think you can get an image of the dichotomy of what I'm talking about here. Law of liberty, that's kind of an oxymoron, right? Think about the law, think about the Ten Commandments. Those are rules, right? They're, they're you know, things you have to follow. How exactly is that liberating? I think biblical scholar Daniel Doriani provides an excellent explanation of what James is talking about here. The law is liberating because it is so perfectly suited to human life. Real blessing lies in doing God's will, not simply knowing it. So just like Paul illustrated earlier, the law reveals to us our own sinfulness, but it provides a guidebook for the way that we ought to live. As James writes in verse 25, allowing the word of God to transform us through revealing the areas of our lives where we need to change, results in God blessing our efforts. He walks alongside us as we draw near to him. 
And this plays directly into our second major topic for the night, which is our practice of the Word. So we've talked about our posture towards the Word, doing away with everything that would distract us and humbling ourselves before God's Word. And now we talk about how that translates into action. James discusses various examples of how we are to live out the Word of God as he ends chapter 1 and begins through chapter 2. There really is so much that I wish we could go into in this passage, uh, but I really want to specifically relate it to our overall discussion of how we approach the Word of God and how our posture towards it should impact our practice of the Word. So to summarize briefly, in James's historical context, we see that the early church is dividing along economic lines. Favoritism is being shown to members of a particular social rank or status due to their wealth, while other poorer members of the congregation are thrown to the wayside. And if you know anything about the life and ministry of Jesus, you can understand how contrary that is to the gospel. Prejudice of any sort runs directly against what Christ displayed through the words he said and the actions he did. And I think you can see that clearly in the Gospel of Matthew. And so I have a few examples that I want to run through from that. The first and the one you guys probably just thought of is Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And I want to make a brief note here. Poor in spirit refers to those who understand the nature of their own souls before God, Right? It's not just talking about those who are financially destitute. But the reason I bring this up is because it is so often that those who are financially destitute or are needy in some other way recognize their own station before a holy God. They recognize that there's nothing they can do in order to bring themselves closer to Him. It's when we are at our most broken that we are most poor in spirit, that we recognize our need for God to act on our behalf. In Matthew chapter 11, verses 4 through 5, John the Baptist sends his followers to ask if Jesus is the Messiah, and Jesus responds to them, Go and tell John what you see and hear. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. Think about what Christ is doing here. He's asked, Are you the Messiah? And he says, If you're wondering if I am the Messiah, look at how I treat these. Look at what I do for those who cannot help themselves. Think about who he's describing, the blind, the lame, the lepers, the poor, even the dead. All of these groups are in some recognizable need. They're in some station that they can't bring themselves out of. And Christ's heart is for those who know that they need him. This favor is what James is referring to when he asks this rhetorical question in chapter 2, verse 5. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom. What's happening in James's day is that the church's actions aren't reflecting God's heart. As we see in these verses from Matthew, their conduct does not reflect the character of Christ. James uses strong legal language in the remainder of this passage in order to reflect the severity of what the early church is doing. They're showing partiality to rich members of their congregation. They're violating what Jesus describes in Matthew 22, verse 37 through 40, as one of the two greatest commandments. And I'll go ahead and read from that. And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. James harkens back to the same command in verse 8 of chapter 2. This command comes from Leviticus chapter 19. And in saying this, he's emphasizing that the church, in neglecting to care for the least of those within their congregation, is 
neglecting to care for Christ. They're neglecting to follow this crucial commandment, and in doing so, they've broken the law as a whole. You can see this in verse 10, whenever he says, whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. And again, Daniel Doriani provides useful insight in translating this verse into our modern context. If we obey the laws that seem right to us, then we obey only when a law passes our judgment or suits our purpose. This approach forgets that God gave every law. In effect, we consult with God and possibly gain valuable pointers from him, but we're still masters of our lives. In this way, obedience is all or nothing. We submit to God totally or not at all. We don't get to pick and choose what aspects of God's character we want to follow. We can't just focus on those parts of God's word that are easy to implement or the ones that are the most convenient to hear. It's a royal law, like James describes it. It's something that's given by our king to guide life in the kingdom and to cause it to flourish, to be abundant, and to invite others in. I think this is particularly jarring and convicting given the specific test that James gives for true right relationship with God in chapter 1, verse 27. He says that religion is, that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. David Platt, in his commentary on James, just hammers this home. James tells us that true religion consists in looking after the neediest people in your community. He's not just saying that if you are a Christian, this is one way you might help someone else. No, he's saying that if you are a Christian, you are obligated to look after orphans and widows. And if you don't, your religion is not acceptable before God. If we're not doing this, and we're not actively seeking to serve those most in need within our communities, we're no different than those in the book of James. And I think this message should cut deep within our context today. It should lead us to ask how aware our church and our ministry is of those needs that are faced by those within our community. Now, our mission statement here at FCM is for the campus, for the city, and for the nations. But I want us to ask, are we? Are we actually for these people? And is that reflected in our actions? Are we actively seeking to understand the needs of those in our context? We understand what the physical needs of those within our communities are, within our the different areas in which we work. And I also want to emphasize here, I am talking about physical needs, but I'm not just talking about physical needs because that only lasts as long as that person lives. Are we not addressing the ultimate spiritual need of every person on this globe who does not know Jesus to have eternal life, to experience that relationship with him and come to know him and thereby be saved? If we truly are a reflection of God's character, and we should be, and shouldn't we be passionate about inviting others into the same eternal life that we get to experience just as Christ invited us into? And like we talked about earlier, this word of God shows us who we are on an individual basis. When we allow God to speak to us, he shows us individually, you and me, those areas where we need to improve. But I think it does the same thing for our ministry as a whole. But in all of this, I want us to remember that it's, it's important to understand why we ought to care for the helpless. And I think we see this clearly in, James, in the very end of this section, James chapter 2, verse 12 through 13, which I'll just read to you all. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy, and mercy triumphs over judgment. We show mercy to others and we love others because that is what God has done for us. 
David Platt, again in his commentary on James, writes, When you are forgiven of your sins, you are compelled to forgive others. As you have received mercy, you extend mercy. But the converse of this truth is particularly humbling and penetrating. If we do not extend mercy, we demonstrate that we have not received mercy. This section introduces a topic that James fleshes out in much more detail in the subsequent section of his book, uh, namely discussing how true faith will express itself in works. But for our purposes tonight, what I want us to get here is that James is saying that if Christ has provided aid to us when we could not help ourselves, then we must be doing the same things for those who are within our own circumstances. And this isn't because, I really want to make this clear tonight, this isn't because that mercy earns our way closer to God. If you are in a relationship with Christ, if you are part of this audience that James is writing to, if you're part of the body of believers, then you understand that you have already been paid for. You are already part of that body of Christ, and that's so important to understand here. Rather, what we're saying is that because he has done that for us, because he has invited us into this eternal life, then our mercy that we show to other people is a reflection of his character. If we are his, then we will reflect that same mercy that he's shown to us. God's heart for orphans, widows, the poor, the blind, the weak, the sick, and the spiritually dead must be reflected in the thoughts, emotions, and actions of his people. And when we approach the word of God in meekness and humility, God shows us the areas of our lives in which we are not doing this. And so to take this full circle, um, just as we kind of close up here. Uh, I want to encourage you guys to apply this to your lives throughout this week. Specifically, I want you to approach God honestly this week and spend time listening to adopt this posture that we're talking about where we get away from distractions and approach the word in humility and allow him to challenge us. If you were on fall retreat, you heard Jonathan Gary talk a great deal about this, specifically in the context of pursuing rest. And I really want to encourage you guys to do that, to take time alone with God and allow him to speak into your life and convict you about those areas where you need to change. Ask him to reveal those people most in need of your aid to whom you need to preach the gospel, both in word and in deed. But I also want you to pray for this ministry. I want you to pray that God would reveal to us all the ways in which we're not embodying his character. That could be who we choose to hang out with. It can be a self-centered mindset when it comes to our time or any other thing that gets in the way of us serving actively in the world. I want you to ask that God would make it clear to this ministry what we are to do, where we are to change, so that we can better exemplify his character and draw people into the life that we experience. If we're going to embody Christ on the earth and we need to get rid of the distractions that get in the way of focusing on him, to come to him in an attitude of humility, to allow the word to speak into our lives so that we're not just hearers, but we're doers. And we'd be filled with this implanted word so that we then pour over into the lives of those around us and we grow the kingdom through that. You guys would pray with me. Lord God, thank you for...